All right. Thanks, Leroy, for reading that very exciting passage. Lester, sorry, I wrote. I wrote Lester. Leroy, I'm just always thinking about you. I don't know. Thanks, Lester, for reading um, that gripping and, and exciting passage. Or, or did you guys not find that to be terribly exciting? It is. I, I could do a whole, you found Scripture boring, but it is, it is kind of. I won't play around. That's kind of a boring passage. So why did I pick it? Um, you might be asking yourself, did Andrew just get Lester to read the most boring passage he could think of because he thought it'd be funny? And the answer is no, not entirely. Um, that passage is part of a larger story, um, and it's actually doing something kind of interesting. And we'll get to it because this week we're continuing to talk about the power of story, how a story can shape and move a reader. Uh, we kind of had an intro to this concept last week, and today I'm going to dive into the nitty-gritty, the fine details of how these stories work in Scripture, what makes them effective, how we can recognize these techniques, and hopefully how Scripture can impact us even more as a result. So what this is going to look like is me breaking down three different techniques that Scripture often uses in its writing and storytelling. There's a ton of others. Uh, I'm not going to get the chance to talk about dialogue or numbers today, but these will be a pretty good start, I, I think. So we're going to talk about repetition, tropes, and metaphor. Those are the three. So... We'll dive into repetition. Uh, this one is probably the most obvious to the naked eye. Uh, it's hard not to notice when something repeats. It's hard not to notice when something repeats. I thought that was clever. Uh, in fact, maybe it can even be a little annoying at first glance. You could maybe react like, okay, like we get it. Let's, let's move on. We, we've been over this. It's not a technique that we use quite as much today. Uh, I can't imagine that when you're telling a story to your friends, you tell the same event twice. But even today, repetition can be a pretty powerful tool um, to have an effect on its readers when it's done correctly. I think there's two primary ways that repetition can be used. The first is to set up through repetition and then pay off when whatever's repeating stops or changes. That's kind of one way it's used. And the other would be where it just keeps repeating. Uh, and that's to really hammer something home, to go, pay attention to this. This is important. So let me give you an example of the first kind. I invite you all to open your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, one of the creation stories uh, found in Scripture. And it emphasizes the power and the majesty and the splendor of God. And how creation is an outpouring and a reflection of that. And yet, underneath all this majesty, we eventually learn that creation is not complete without humanity. We get a little repetition at the end of each section of creation. And God saw that it was good. Nothing wrong with that. It's not bad. It's good. This repeats five times at the end of each day. But then, on the sixth day, God creates mankind. And at the end of the day, God saw that it was very good. How great is that? We're his image. It wasn't complete without us. I've heard this point of it was very good made many times by many different people. And that's awesome. But my question to all of us is this. Would it have struck us as much if the passage didn't say, and God saw that it was good five times before this? It would still mean something, for sure. Creation of humanity is very good. Absolutely, that would still mean something. But to lead up to it with the sky, good. The, the birds, good. The grass, good. Humanity, very good. Well, that lends it so much more impact. The repetition is what makes that one word change hit you. 
I like to imagine a real-world occurrence of this happening when, the, uh, when Israel marches around Jericho. Remember this story? For six days, the Israelites approach the city of Jericho, which they're trying to conquer, but it's like a fortress. And they march around it once, and then they go back to their camp. But on the seventh day, they approach it, they march around it, and then they just keep going. They march around it again, and again, and again. I imagine the panic that must have been going on inside. What is happening? This isn't like before. This is different. Something's going to happen. The power of repetition is literally used as a war technique here. So, back to our scripture passage. Uh, I'm going to close off the repetition section with maybe the most extreme example I could think of. Um, And I would really, honestly, ask you all to turn to number seven if you haven't already. Because just looking at the words on the page here already accomplishes some of this. I promise, you don't even have to read it. Just, Just have it so you can look at it. Number seven. As the Israelites are giving gifts in order to build the tabernacle, this chapter lays out in detail what they gave, uh, or part of building the tabernacle. But, but here's the thing. They all gave exactly the same stuff. So number 7, 12 to, 7, uh, 12 to 17, reads what we read before. He offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Amminadab, of the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver plate, and we read it already. That's 130 shekels. We, we, yeah, we, we got it. But here's the thing. The next paragraph changes these words. On the second day, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, the chief of Issachar, made an offering. And that's it. That's all it changes. Everything else is the same. And then Eliab from Zebulun. And then Eliezer from Reuben. It repeats that passage word for word 12 times. That makes this, after Psalm 119, the second longest chapter in the Bible. So show of hands here, and I want you to be honest with me. How many of you can say that you've gotten to this passage while reading and then read all 12 sections? A few, a few, okay. Not many, though. And, like, fair. It's easy to read this with modern eyes and go, why are we repeating this? Let's get on with it. But why do we think this repeats? Do we think it's for no reason? It's Scripture, guys. I I don't pretend to know everything, but there has to be a few reasons, right? Here's one that I can think of. It demonstrates the includedness of each tribe of Israel, even the ones that seemed way less important. Hey, little old Manasseh, here's what the great and mighty Judah gave, this and this and this. And then here's what you guys gave, this and this and this. Word for word the same. You guys are just as much Israelites and have just as much claim to the inheritance as they do, and to God as they do. Judah remained strong and important for hundreds of years. And at the time of writing, it was twice as large as Manasseh. And Manasseh disappeared long before Judah did. But here they are, equals, giving the exact same amount. Golding A writes that if you belong to a far-off clan that doesn't obviously count any longer as Israel, it reminds you that you do. Your leader took part in the story, and you made as big a contribution as, say, Judah. And if you belong to Judah, it reminds you to not overestimate your importance and to not underestimate the significance of clans that seem to be lost. They're still Israel. Israel isn't just you. The repetition could also emphasize the tribe's generosity, right? Look at what they gave. It could emphasize their unity. Pay attention to how they're all doing this together. It could emphasize the tangible ways that serving God can look like. It doesn't seem like God asked for this identical giving in the text, but the tribes did it. 
which makes you think that they saw one another as equals here. Guys, even the most boring passages, boring passages of Scripture, have something to tell us. And a little thought into how something might have been taken in its original context, or why something might be there in the first, just asking why, uh, maybe it can get us a little closer to what the passage is telling us. So, here's another technique that Scripture uses when uh, telling stories to tell us something. Tropes. A trope is a situation that keeps happening in writing, uh, like a cliche or a motif. We often talk about how different parts of Scripture are in different genres, right? You can't read Song of Solomon like it's history, and you can't read Kings and Chronicles like they're advice. Please don't. And you can't read the epistles like they're poetry, right? They wouldn't make any sense that way. Uh, They have to be looked at the way that they were meant to be seen. Tropes are a much smaller, much more specific version of genre. And anyone can just do tropes, right? I could ask you to write me a rom-com, and you could probably give me a generic series of events, right? Two people meet, uh, there's an attraction, but they don't do anything about it. They have a moment of connection, they start to date, but then they have a big misunderstanding or breakup, and then they get back together at the end. What movie did I just describe? I could ask 20 of you that, and I'd get 20 different answers, and you'd all be right. What separates good rom-coms from bad ones is how they play with that genre, right? Or, or take any pick of whatever genre you like. Um, what do they choose to change? What do they choose to take out? What do they choose to keep in? What's something that, does, what's something that doesn't happen, but that's significant, because we're expecting it to happen? I can throw my sister Olivia under the bus, because she's not here. Um, I remember the first time I showed her the movie La La Land. She was under the impression that it was romantic. And, and I guess it is pretty romantic, but... Uh, Spoiler alert for La La Land, I guess, if you haven't seen it, it's like seven years old. They don't end up together at the end. And she was like, Andrew, what is this? What is going on? This is not how this is supposed to go. She was affected by it because the genre, the tropes, led her to expect something and then changed it. Scripture does this too. So here's my big example. Several times in the Old Testament, a person will travel to a strange foreign land and they'll go to a well there. And at that well, they'll meet the person that they're going to marry. Water will be drawn, and that future spouse will run back home, and that person will be invited for a meal, and then we jump to their engagement. Yeah, so that lets it laid right out. This is the Old Testament's version of a rom-com. I'm not kidding. This meets your spouse at the well story. It happens several times, but each time it's a little bit different. And those differences tell us something. So the first time this happens is in Genesis 24, when Abraham sends his servant to go get a non-Canaanite wife for Isaac. The servant travels, arrives at the well, and prays for God to show him the right woman by a sign of her watering his camels. And then Rebekah comes out immediately and chooses to water his camels herself, without knowing that. So what's changed from the default version here? Here's the big obvious one. Isaac's not here. Abraham sent a servant instead. This is pretty fitting. Isaac's easily the most passive of all the patriarchs. As a child, Abraham binds him and almost sacrifices him. And as an old man, his sons manipulate him and play off of him in power games. He doesn't really do much. People do things to him and do things for him. Just like here. By contrast, Rebekah has a lot of agency in this story. 
And she'll go on to guide her son Jacob into getting an inheritance and play her favorite with skill and intelligence. Here, it's her decision to water the camels. She's pretty independent, and we see both of these things in how Scripture tells their engagement meet at the well story. Well, the next one is their son, Jacob, in Genesis 29. He's running away from the consequences of manipulating his brother and his father, and he's arriving at an uncle who's going to manipulate him. So he gets to the well in a foreign land, and as he's asking where he is, Rachel comes out with her father's sheep. Much of the following story is going to be about Jacob and Laban using sheep to try and get the upper hand on each other. So it makes sense that the sheep are here at the engagement story. What else is different about this one? There's a rock over the well. Uh, So in order for the sheep to be watered, Jacob wrestles with it and pushes it away. Throughout his life, Jacob is constantly wrestling. He wrestles with his brother. He wrestles with his uncle. He literally wrestles with God. And maybe the core moment of his, the arc of his life. And that core part of who he is is present in his engagement story. And this might be a bit of a stretch, but maybe Rachel's defining characteristic is that she really struggled to get pregnant and what that did to her emotionally. And here, it's a great struggle to get water from the well. That's a bit of a reach, I'll admit. But the big final twist here, of course, is that Rachel runs back and she and Jacob love each other, but what follows is not their marriage. Instead, Laban tricks Jacob and gives him Leah first in order to get a bonus seven years work from him. The whole reason Jacob came here in the first place is that he's running away because he tricked his father by pretending, as the younger child, to be the older child. And at the time, that passage doesn't comment on the morality of this action. It doesn't say if it's good or bad. And if you're reading while knowing what happens down the line, that the people of Israel come through Jacob, you might even go, whew, good thing he got that inheritance. Good move, Jacob. Good thing you received the blessing to become a nation. But then, at the climax of the engagement, meet your spouse at the well story, they don't actually get married for a long time because the same kind of deceit, pretend the older child's the younger one, is done to Jacob. Something that he did is done to him, and it interrupts his engagement story. And we go, oh, here's the comeuppance for Jacob's actions. The consequences have caught up, and we're shown this through a twist in the engagement story trope. Next up is Moses. His is pretty brief, but he arrives in Midian after fleeing from Egypt because he killed a man. And the rest of his life will be being God's figurehead as he sends violent plagues on the Egyptians and then leading the Israelites into the desert where there'll be an on-again, off-again war for 40 years. So when he gets to the well, Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, is there trying to water her father's flocks. But she can't. And it's not because there's a rock over the well, but it's because there's other shepherds there who are bullies, who are in the process of kicking her out. But, and I quote, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And Zipporah runs back and tells her father, and Moses is invited for a meal, and they get married. So not wrestling, and not passiveness, but violence on behalf of the oppressed. That's kind of what defines this engagement, meet your spouse at the well story. And that's going to go on to play a big part in their lives. Why do I lay all this out? Um, One, I think it's pretty cool. But mostly, I think that being aware of how tropes are used can help us understand the biblical people a lot better. 
And thus our understanding of how God used them and spoke to them grows too. In the example of the meat at the well store, these patriarchs were all in very similar situations, right? These are pretty similar. And yet the specifics of it are tailored to their story. And their different choices tell us who they are. When Jacob wrestles with God in Genesis 32, 28, and God says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome, we can go, yeah, he has. Even in his betrothal story, he was struggling. Or we can keep reading and get to the story of Samson. And we'll see in Judges 14 that Samson travels to a foreign land, to Timnah, and he sees a beautiful woman there. And we can go, oh, yeah, I know where this is going. I've heard this story before. But what's this? There's no well. There's no drawing of water. There's no conversation. There's no invitation. There's no meal. He sees her. He goes back to his parents, and he says, I want to marry her. The only thing that's even close to drawing water is him drawing the honey out of a lion's dead body. Something's very wrong here. And something is wrong. This marriage is going to be a disaster. A disaster for the bride, a disaster for her town, eventually a disaster for Samson. His life will keep being him not doing what he's supposed to do, not following God. And you can see that pattern if you look for it in his engagement story. The Bible's all interwoven, guys. It's, it's interconnected. It's not just a series of random stories. Our in, uh, one informs our reading of another. What happens in one affects what we think when something different happens in another. These connect. They talk to each other. And tropes are a great way of seeing these connections. The final great way is that of a metaphor. Now, a metaphor, in simplest terms, is when something means something else. When a person or place or idea is represented by a symbol or a smaller thing. It's like in The Lord of the Rings. Um, the ring that needs to be destroyed is literally just a magic ring, right? Like in the text, that's all it is, just a ring. But it represents so much more. Addiction, corrupting power, nuclear Armageddon. Those themes, that metaphor, is what makes it so resonant. Jesus was a big fan of these. We're going to talk more about his parables in a week or two, but that's mostly what they are. He'll tell a story about a woman cleaning her house, But he's not really talking about house cleaning, is he? That's why he starts him off with the kingdom of heaven is like, and off he goes, using a metaphor to communicate a truth. One of the few times he explains it clearly is in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He gives this whole story about a farmer sowing different types of seed and what causes some to grow and some not to. And his disciples come up to him afterwards and go, hey, Jesus, uh, that was a nice story, but why are you talking about farming? And he has to go, guys, that was a metaphor. (laughs) I'm talking about you. The parables can be pretty easy to catch, though. Not everything is. For instance, in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus teaches that he is the bread of life. Verse 51 to 54 uh, reads as following. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And if we skip ahead to verse 66, uh, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That was a metaphor. 
Jesus is using the metaphor of bread and, and wine to talk about how we need to be constantly consuming him, taking him in, having him be inside of us. And that gives us an energy and a vitality that the world can't understand. And you know who doesn't understand? This audience. Uh, these people listening, they walk away going, what is he talking about? They don't get the metaphor. But for those of that, us that do, it broadens our understanding of the gospel beyond just Jesus saying, believe me. Okay, sure, we can believe me, we understand that, but it has to be in us, okay. We have to choose to take it, okay. Another great example of this is in Matthew 16. Immediately, after an argument with the Pharisees, they hit the road, but the disciples have forgotten to bring bread. So verse 6 reads, Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, because we didn't bring any bread. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? He's not really talking about bread. He's talking about dangerous teachings and how they can seep, in, uh, seep into us and work through us like a yeast works through a batch of dough if we're not careful. But the disciples needed a little push before they understood. Metaphors aren't just in dialogue, though. Uh, sometimes they're in a story. The story of Balaam uh, has got to be one of the funniest sections of the Bible. But I think it also works as a pretty great metaphor. Uh, Balaam is this prophet that works near Moab. He's not an Israelite, but he does speak to Yahweh. And the people of Israel are approaching. And Balak, the king of Moab, is panicking. He, send, uh, he needs a prophet to curse these people, or else they will, and I quote, lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. I just think that's a great line. So he sends for Balaam, and Balaam asks God if he can go. And that night, the Lord says that Israel's blessed by him. So in the morning, Balaam says, sorry guys, God won't let me go. But when Balak hears this, uh, the king sends more important men with more money, and he says, I'll reward you very richly. But God's already said no, right? So Balaam responds with, Though Balak were to give me his house of silver and gold, I couldn't go beyond the command of my, the Lord my God to do less or more. So, you too, please stay here tonight that I might know more what the Lord will say to me. And God essentially goes, All right, go. If you want to go so bad, go. But God doesn't actually want Balaam to do this thing, right? He said no the first time. And obviously he's guiding Israel. Balaam claims to be close to God. He starts his third and fourth oracle with the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. Essentially, I'm close to God. I see what God shows me. But maybe he's not as close as he thinks. Balaam will go to Balak, and three times... Balak's going to build seven altars and sacrifice seven bulls and rams only for Balaam to not see what he wants him to see. Balaam will bless Israel instead of cursing them each of the three times, each one escalating in strength and giving them a double blessing at the third set of altars. Balak is not very happy about this, understandably. <laughs> they part ways on bad terms. But a funny thing happens on the way to Balak. <laughs> Balaam's donkey talks to him. What happens is that there's an angel in the road ready to strike Balaam, and he can't see it, but the donkey can. 
For all of Balaam's claims of spiritual enlightenment and great wisdom, the donkey sees better than he does. It tries to get out of the way, but Balaam beats it back onto the track. This happens three times. And each time, the donkey's actions are more drastic. It goes into a field, then it crushes his foot against the wall. Finally, it lies down beneath him. And on the third time, the Lord opens the donkey's mouth and it asks, why are you hitting me? And Balaam, taking this in stride, goes, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. And the donkey goes, I've never done this before. You don't think there's a reason for this? And the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and shows him the angel. I think there's a metaphor here. Balaam is the donkey. He's stupid, but the Lord does open his mouth to speak through him. Three times, he's going to disappoint his master by seeing something that the master doesn't want him to see and acting in a way that the master doesn't want him to act. But also, he's not as bright as he thinks he is. He's the donkey. It's God going, Balaam, this is you. It's showing him a picture of himself, going, look, this is you. He's showing him who he really is, using the metaphor of a donkey. Balaam's not as bright as he thinks he is, and God can still use him. But God can use a donkey just as easily. (laughs) A final, more poignant example might be that of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea is a prophet in Israel, and God tells him to marry a sex worker, a prostitute. A woman named Gomer, who is so broken and selfish because of that brokenness, that she'll only hurt him and leave him. Hurt him and leave him. And every time she leaves, Hosea takes her back. He cares for her. He provides for her. He loves her. And she deserves none of this. She has a history of infidelity, and in chapter 2, she's run away uh, with another man again. But Hosea goes to her and brings her back, back into a house of love. And in case we don't get the symbolism, the start of chapter 3 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Here's the metaphor. The first part of Hosea is beautifully structured. The first thing we read is this account of Hosea's marriage to a woman who treats him like garbage. And then we have this prophecy from the Lord talking about what his people have done to him and what they deserve. These two things are connected. One, Hosea's marriage, is an illustration of the other, the Lord and his people. It's a metaphor. The Israelites deserve death. They deserve shame. They deserve to be left to their own choices and forgotten, says the Lord. Verse 13 reads, She burned incense to the Baals, and she decked herself with rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her, and I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came out of Egypt. And that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. God will love the people who've left them, even though they don't deserve it. They've made their choice. They deserve to be left to its consequences but he'll come and call them home and clean them up and give them a love that they can't even comprehend. And the people that Hosea is speaking to, they can hear these words, sure, but words are cheap. What does that even look like? But here's Hosea. 
welcoming and loving a wife who leaves him and lusts after others, who once made a vow and has spat on it every day since. According to Israelite law, she deserves death. She definitely deserves to be left to her consequences, right? You've left this good thing for something terrible. Now you have to live with that choice. But Hosea welcomes her back. Not only that, he goes out and he gets her. He brings her back in. And it's not that he's a pushover, and it's not that he's powerless. It's that he loves her. That's tangible. That's real. It's observable for the Israelites. It's relatable. It's understandable. And the lost people of Israel can look at that, look at that metaphor being played out in reality in front of their eyes and go, oh, that's how God loves me. There's such power in that. Scripture is full of these. The Bible contains countless stories, and they're not told amateurishly. They're incredibly crafted, using far more techniques than what I had time for today to share these truths. And you can read them at a glance, and they'll still work, absolutely. And these techniques will affect you, whether or not you're aware of them. It's true. But the further you dig, the more there is to discover. It's an unlimited mind. And as we go on in the next few weeks to continue to talk about storytelling and how the Bible does it, and how we can do it, I hope we can be on the lookout for what Scripture is saying and how it's saying it. Because the more we're looking and the more aware we are, the harder it's going to hit us, I think. Sure, I can be aware that God saw the birth of humanity as very good, right? But to have this cosmic repetition of poetry that describes everything else as good, 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 very good, that affects me. That makes me think about my place in God's kingdom more than just being told it straight up would. But lest I get too excited about my own importance, the metaphor of being a donkey can take me back down to earth. God can use me, but because he's God, not because I'm the great prophet on the mountain, right? But we are treasured and valued and loved, even though we all at one time turned our back on God like an unfaithful spouse. We deserve to be left with our consequences. And I can just tell you, God loves us. And maybe that does something. It's true. But the story of a spouse that loves with forgiveness and tenderness, and sh- that shows us a bit of God, way more. These techniques, they show us God's plan, and they show us God's love. Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you've told the story of your redemption of us and your plan to get us back all throughout the word of God and how we can um, see your heart um, just laid out in scripture. We thank you for the way that you have um, yeah, shown your love and shown your heart for us, God. We pray that we would be listening to what you have to show us and that we would be a people that lived every day in that reality that you have loved us and chosen us. We love you a lot, God. We pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Yeah, I'm here, I think. Thank you, Andrew. Is it on? Okay, <laughs> I can't hear. Uh, Some of you need to know that the reason that uh, Jody is joining us uh, during this series is because this is her wheelhouse. She's an accomplished uh, writer. She's published, 
And so we actually brought in an expert. It cost us a fair <laughs> bit, but uh, anyway. Uh, first question. Uh, does the meet at the well trope affect our understanding of John 4 and Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think so. I mean, that's what's the story of a bunch of the New Testament, if not like the bride of Christ being prepared and made for the Lord, right? Like, um, obviously, Jesus didn't literally get married the way we did, but that's because this, this uh, one of the central metaphors of, of our relationship to God, in addition to God as Father and God as, you know, create, you know, like a, like a pot maker and God as a shepherd. Another big one is God as our, uh, us as the bride of Christ. God is our husband. Um, and I think that absolutely plays into that meeting at the well story in John 4. Totally. Totally. <laughs> I'm going to just leave that with yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, do we have ushers with mics? Uh, we'll, we'll entertain some questions or comments from the floor. As long as they're uh, related to the sermon material, uh, that'd be great. Maybe I could say with the woman at the well story is would go back to the repeat point as mm. well. Like we need to hear it over and over and over again with minor shifts of circumstance and minor shifts of um, frame of mind. Like all of those things affect, but the repeating of that by putting Jesus in mm -hmm. and the woman at the well um, can drive that point home in a very different way, but still the same point. And you, as well, you're going. And you could also almost go that so much of Scripture is yep. um, like subverting, but like what they like the Messiah is supposed to be this this you know violent messianic figure, and he and he is the Messiah, but then it's not the way people expect. A similar way could be, oh, gee, you read and you go with this understanding, oh, geez, this will be the woman that you know, becomes Jesus' partner in, in his ministry. And, and there is a, a marriage of sorts happening, but it's not the way you expect at all, right? Like, it could be another example of that, too. I think I've sometimes heard of a bit of a fear that if Scripture is crafted using literary techniques, then maybe it's not as true. You know, were, were some of these details true or were they added to help the story? And, and is, there, is there a conflict there? And I've heard it, you know, lots of different passages where we go, oh, maybe there's a new way to look at this. Or is that, is that story, like, is Jonah actually real or was it a, a well-crafted story? And then sometimes our, our trust in Scripture might be eroded. Is there something you can speak to that? I mean, I don't find it that ludicrous that people would be meeting at a well <laughs> in ancient times. That feels like a pretty, uh, pretty standard place that you would run into people. It's a very central location. Yeah, I don't know. I personally don't have any hang-ups with that sort of thing, that there is um, elements of composition going on in the way Scripture was written. Um, I don't know. Maybe you guys want to speak to that. I get that that is a super tricky question. <laughs> and, um, but we do also know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't tell lies. It doesn't refute itself. So invite the Lord into your time of reading. Hmm. Invite him to speak truth to you. And invite him, 
even <laughs> into the numbers passage because mm -hmm. it's valid. Those things are super important to the entirety of the story. Like, totally. read Leviticus because everything in that also holds weight. Um, those are just the bits that we find less controversial or want to tear apart because they don't make us question. We just glance over them. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe this would be another good reason for uh, trying to come to grips with genre mm. uh, because different genre, different uh, writing styles also, this is meant to be taken literally, this is not. Mm -hmm. This is historical, this is an example. And, and sometimes that plays into things. Yeah. Um, culture. <clears throat> Culture was a huge thing, too, as well, in that time, because I'm not wearing a headdress right now. Like, simple things like that. But the Bible tells me I should, but I'm also not in thousands of years ago mm. Jerusalem. So, it, well, ask for wisdom, I would mm. say, as well. Yeah. Even, even take the Redeemer story about uncovering the feet on the threshing floor and we don't have a cultural context to understand that from our culture. That's, that's the, like now, you're going to have to be really careful about interpreting what does that mean, what happened there, right? Like uh, Ruth and, yeah. you want to know something interesting? That happens right by well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't put it in, but I thought about it. <laughs> I, uh, I felt a little bit trapped this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've been reading the Chronological Bible. I started, uh, and uh, I've read. Uh, I'm in Numbers right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has uh, impressed me, it's not so much a question as an observation, mm. uh, God's uh, interest in detail. Mm. Like, that, that repetition of he brought one thing and another thing and then another person brings the same thing mm -hmm. but the uh, emphasis on detail seemed to uh, reflect that God is perfect he, mm. uh, he has a standard uh, and uh, we shouldn't just try and tweak it to our liking God has a standard and this all has uh, uh, its fulfillment in Jesus, who is the great high priest, and that went through uh, the curtain and is now seated at the right hand of God. Uh, all of that detail in, in the Old Testament has a purpose. Mm. Uh, or am I wrong? <laughs> that, that's, that is beautiful. That is so beautiful. The details that God requires of us allows us to walk in obedience with him whether we understand what he's asking of us or not. And that's, that's really beautiful. Totally. Yeah, I had to like kind of put my money where my mouth was in prep for this. Like, well, I guess I do actually have to read this chapter <laughs> all the way through and force myself to not just kind of glaze over it. And, like, and yeah, that, that was another thing that, you know, that's another great read there. of Like, right, the, the intricate details and the way this all like clicks together in such a precise way is, Yeah. So much of biblical interpretation, I think, is just looking at it and just asking, okay, so why? Like, clearly this is divinely inspired. Why does it say this? Why is it ordered this way? And just asking why and starting to think about that, yeah. Okay, thank you, Jody and Andrew.
uh, we'll get the praise band to come lead us in some more singing. <laughs>